Good morning. Uh, let me just say one more word of prayer for us. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would help us see how good Jesus is this morning, uh, would remind us of the truths of the gospel, remind us who we are uh, as individuals, as a group, and what we ought to be doing. God, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in life, there are big decisions and small decisions. And the way you decide the difference is basically the implications or the impact those decisions will make. So a small decision, you might have woken up this morning and thought, do I eat Cheerios or Frosted Flakes? Okay, small decision, right? Because either way you go, it's really not that big of a deal. Bigger decision, should we refinance the house? Should we pack up and move to a different place where we feel like God's calling us or there's a job offer? Should we consider foster care? Those are big decisions because big impact. But sometimes we might think a decision's big when it's really small. Oh man, what you wore to prom in high school was a big deal, right? Okay, but you look back now and you're like, really not that big of a deal. But what about decisions that might seem small but actually have a much bigger impact than you realize? Uh, In 1912, uh, there's a man named David Blair. We've got a picture of him here. He was uh, assigned as the second officer uh, for the RMS Titanic. And at the last moment, like the day the ship was to set sail, he was actually reassigned to another ship uh, because the ship's owners uh, thought they wanted someone else who had more experience with larger luxury liners. They thought that would be safer. And so uh, David Blair was reassigned to a different ship. Seemingly a small decision, to the ship's owners. Um, that's that's fairly a, normal, a fairly normal thing for ships and uh, just was kind of a run-of-the-mill business decision uh, that the White Star Line would have made many times. But what they didn't know uh, is that David Blair accidentally, in his, he had to like rush to get off the Titanic in time before it set sail. So in his rush to get off, he accidentally kept in his pocket a key. Now that's significant because that key that he kept in his pocket Uh, went to the locker of the crow's nest, which is where the lookouts for icebergs work. And so the men who were supposed to be looking out for icebergs didn't have the binoculars that they needed because David Blair accidentally kept it in his pocket because he was reassigned. Small decision. The ship's owners probably had, I'm sure they had no idea the impact that decision might have had. In a later trial... um, to figure out exactly what caused the sinking and who was to blame. One of the men who was on duty that night in the crow's nest actually did survive, and so he was asked, if you had had the binoculars, would it have made a difference? And uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, if we had seen it in time, we would have seen it in time to get out of the way. Um, Big difference. Small decision, huge impact. Now, that's kind of a negative uh, illustration, but it can go the other way, too. In 2005, this guy named David Choi, uh, he's a graffiti artist uh, in Southern California, and he was commissioned by a small startup company to paint their office space. And so for a couple of uh, years, or sorry, not a couple of years, so for a couple of days, he's painting, and this small startup company, they're uh, trying to save money, and so they offer to pay him his normal rate of a couple thousand dollars, or 
to try to save the money they have on hand and basically pay him back later, they offer some shares uh, of stock in the company. And uh, even though he later admitted, I didn't really believe in it, he still took the stocks instead of the share or instead of the money. Seven years later, he was able to cash in. Only seven years. That's not a super long time in the stock market. Uh, he was able to cash that in for $200 million. The company was Facebook. He had no idea how big they were going to get. Uh, seemingly small decision, and, but had a big impact. So what does that have to do with us this morning? Cool stories, small decision, big impact. There are decisions in your life that probably don't seem like that big of a deal that have more of an impact than you might realize. And I would contend that joining a small group, which sounds like a small decision, is actually a bigger deal than you think. So the main point of the sermon this morning that we're going to look at uh, is that you need other Christians in your life. You need other Christians in your life to help you experience gospel transformation, authentic community, and to live on mission. You cannot do those things on your own. God has given us a body of believers and we need them to do those things. Now, I don't think a small group is the end-all, be-all decision of your whole life. That's not, that's not the only way these things can happen. But I believe it's the most effective way that we can do them as a church. So, um, by the way, these uh, three things that I have in the sentence, they map directly to our church's mission statement. So gospel transformation. Our church's mission statement is connecting people to the God who made them, to friends who helped them, and to a world that needs them. And so experience gospel transformation, that's connecting people to the God who made them. Authentic community, connecting people to friends who help them. And live on mission is connecting to a world that needs them. It's our church's pithy way of saying we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so that's the ultimate goal of our church, and that's really the ultimate goal of small groups. So we're going to look at each one of these uh, in turn and then take a look at how other, we need other Christians for that and how small groups ought to be kind of fulfilling that need. So first off, we need other Christians to help us truly experience gospel transformation. Now when I say gospel transformation, what I mean is a Total change of your person. Now, I mentioned, I talked a little bit about this um, a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to go quickly today, but if you want, you can go online and listen to some of the earlier sermons from this series. So uh, sermon one was on um, I, uh, church membership, and so that would have been the one uh, that I'm referring to if you want to listen to that. But uh, the short version is, uh, the gospel is not a superficial belief that we just kind of adopt, um, but it is a reality that changes us from the core of our being and affects everything about us. The imagery of the Bible here, it, it totally drives us to this point. It tells us that we've been given a new heart. It tells us that we've been born again. It tells us that we are a new creation. It tells us that we have a new citizenship. All of these images are going to show us it is not just kind of this cosmetic idea that we kind of subscribe to. It is a deep inner reality that changes our, our identity at the core. And it does change our outward behavior, but it changes so much more than that. You and I, we are not perfect. Like the rest of humanity, we have rebelled against God. We have rejected his rule and his reign in favor of our own. And so we've earned ourselves condemnation. 
But while we were still sinners, while we were rebelling against God, the Bible tells us Christ died for us. That God the Father willingly sent his son who willingly laid down his life so that we could be made right with God, so that rebellion could be forgiven. Now, three days after he was crucified, Jesus rose again, defeating death, defeating the consequences of sin, and offering new life to anybody who would follow him. And so if you believe in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, those things are true of you. You are a new creation. You've been given a new heart. You are a citizen of a different country now. All of these things are true because of your faith in Jesus. And what we need is we need to be reminded of that by other Christians. Because the gospel ought to be changing how I think, how I feel, how I act, how I spend my money, how I treat my family members, how I treat my coworkers. And I I have to have other Christians helping me think through how the gospel relates to the rest of my life. They help me see how the good news is good for me personally. You know, when, we, uh, when you get your driver's license, you take a test once. And then you kind of forget about it for quite a while until um, another point in your life where you might need to take the test. The gospel is not something that you just kind of do once, like a driver's license test, and then pretty much forget about but sort of live by for a while. The gospel is it's a lot more like food. Just like you need to eat food multiple times a day, every day, to stay healthy. You need to be reminded of the gospel multiple times a day, every day, to truly experience the transformation the Bible is talking about. It is a constant dependence on this truth of who God is and what he has done. And I need other Christians to remind me of it because I will forget, and you will forget. Uh, There's a guy named John Flavel, a, a Puritan writer, and I just love this image he came up with. He said the human heart, it's kind of like a guitar, that at one point it might be perfectly tuned, but that if you set it off to the side and wait a couple months, for no other reason just then that's the nature of guitars, it'll get out of tune. And our hearts may at one point be perfectly in line with the gospel. We may be believing Jesus, we may be living according to that, we may be um, living out of our identity as a son or daughter of God, and then if we just kind of forget to rehearse the gospel to ourselves or have other Christians rehearsing it for us, then before long, we're going to start drifting into thinking really insidious and subtle lies about God. Things like, I have to maintain my devotional life for God to really be happy with me. Or God's not really who he says he is in scripture. We just start to drift for no other reason than that's, that's just the nature of the human heart. We just do that. And so we have to have people coming alongside us, helping us keep our heart in tune with the gospel. So an example of what this might look like and maybe this isn't an example for some of you, maybe uh, you're at work and you're just swamped. You've got so much to do. You're never going to catch up. Uh, You feel behind. You're worried about what your boss is thinking. You're worried about what your coworkers are thinking. You start, you know, basically talking bad to yourself about yourself. I'm I'm such a failure. Why do I even work for this company? You might be quick-tempered with your spouse and your kids. And you start kind of functioning out of this lie that my work defines me. And what you need is you need another Christian brother or sister to come remind you that your work does not define or direct your life. Who you are as a son or daughter of God defines you. Who Jesus is and what he does defines you. And you can and should work as hard as you can, but 
because of your security in Christ, because God has promised to walk through hard times with you, has promised to provide for you, you can leave work at work. You don't have to carry that stress home. You can be carefree, not careless, but you can be carefree. And so you start functioning a little bit more out of that identity. Uh, maybe if you're a single mom, or not a single mom, but a stay-at-home mom, and you just feel like, I do things all day, and yet I feel like I get nothing done. Um, and so it feels like I feel kind of guilty resting and sitting down for five minutes. Uh, you need to be reminded that Jesus has accomplished everything that needs accomplishing. And so you can take a nap and rest. Whatever it is for you, you need other Christians to remind you of what Jesus has done. And this is something we ought to be doing as small groups. We ought to be opening the Bible, figuring out who God is, what he's done, and reminding each other of of those truths and the implications of those truths for your personal lives. So we're praying together, we're reading the Bible together, and hopefully that's one thing that your small groups ought to be doing. But remember, the goal is to make disciples. The goal is to make disciples of Jesus. So you could theoretically have a person who has a very firm understanding of who God is and what he has done, and even in light of that, who they are. But that person may not necessarily be a mature disciple if they're living in isolation. So that's why we get to the second point. We need, we need other Christians to live in authentic community. Well, that's sort of a no-brainer, right? You need other people to be in a community, right? You need other people. But the reason I chose the word authentic is key here because so many people, including people in the church, almost especially in the church, live in what could be called a crowded loneliness where you feel surrounded by people and yet you're so alone. Uh, where you might be talking to people all day and yet say nothing. You might be more connected than ever on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and yet you feel as isolated as you've ever been. Being simply just around other people is not community. Okay, when I say authentic community, what I mean is you're taking down these masks that, you're, that you wear to try to get people to accept you and you actually trust people. You don't have to pretend like you're fine. You actually let people know who you really are and you know who they really are. And really the church ought to be the safest and, and richest place where this takes place because, because our relationship is not based on you or me. It's based on who Jesus is and what he's done. So I can let my walls down. I don't have to pretend like I've never struggled with anything because who I am in Jesus is enough. And so I have to trust you to relate to me on the basis of what Jesus has done. And you need to trust me to let down your wall and we relate to each other based on what Jesus has done. I don't, you don't have to pretend like you're fine. If life is not going well, you can share that. If you've messed up and been more angry to your children than you should have, that's something you can and should share. That's authentic community. It's not pretending like we're fine all the time. One of the things this means is that uh, we need to think differently about community and small groups. Many of us think uh, community or even small group life uh, happens at a specific time, at a specific place once a week. So you think, I'm going to so-and-so's house from 7 to 8.30 on Wednesday night, and that's where I'm going to experience fellowship. That's where I'm going to experience community, and then for the rest of my week, um, I'll just kind of get by until maybe Sunday morning or hopefully the next week. 
Okay? That is, we, we view community as an event. But biblically speaking, the way the disciples interact with one another, picture that we get from the book of Acts, especially uh, 2.42 where it says they commit uh, themselves to the apostles' teaching, to meeting together, uh, we get this picture of it, it's much more than that. We invite each other into the rhythms of our lives where you might come to the sporting events of my kids. I come to birthday parties of you and your family members. We are actually involved in the real life of each other. It's not just this isolated event that sort of happens once a week. You will never experience biblical community, or you might, if you want to use the biblical word of fellowship, you'll never experience biblical fellowship if you are constantly holding each other at arm's length, meeting once a week, sharing only the most shallow of prayer requests. That's not how you're going to experience it. We've got to be involved. So um, there are a hundred commands in the New Testament surrounding the one, they're called the one another's. So things like love one another, speak the truth to one another, uh, rebuke one another, all these things, encourage one another. There's a hundred of these commands. It's just not going to happen in an hour and a half a week. I mean, it's, it's going to happen in the rhythm of life. And so, uh, just the other night, Olivia and I, we had a meeting with the small group leaders, and Olivia, my wife, shared this story. When we were living back in eastern Oregon, we, l- we led a small group, and the first night was um, less than exemplary. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, so we had a handful of young families like us with little kids and then a handful of like grandparent age, so j- pretty wide age gap. And that in and of itself has actually turned out to be a really good thing in the long run. But that first night, uh, it was awkward. Um, we didn't quite know how to relate to each other and the young families kind of hung out and the older people kind of hung out. And we were unable to get a babysitter that night. So <laughs> we, we optimistically thought, oh, we could, the kids will be fine just playing with each other and we can just still talk and have a great time. Well, the cookies were at eye level for a four-year-old, okay? So my son, as well as all the others, just stuffing their face with sugar, sugar, sugar the whole night, running and being crazy. At one point, my son actually walked up to this lady, um, her name was Leanne, and she was reading her Bible and he just rips a page straight out of her Bible. Um, yeah. It's okay, she taped it, it's... Yeah, but it, it was just, on top of it all, I chose the worst, like, video study. Uh, it was so cheesy, and it was just, it was awkward, guys. And uh, I remember the end of that night, Olivia and I were just like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Um, but she was telling this story that if you fast forward a year, that same group of people, maybe a handful had joined us, um, we always had meals together. So Olivia was getting her plate with uh, her friend Jessica and was on her way back into the living room. And Jessica, who had been there that first night, she said, Olivia, just stop and look. And uh, Olivia kind of looks around the living room and, and Jessica says, I mean, look at this. Like, do you remember how awkward that first night was? It was so bad. But here we are just like loving one another, talking to one another. Uh, and, and over the course, I mean, we definitely didn't have it perfect. I don't want you to hear that. Um, but over the course of that year, we had really gotten to know each other. Outside of small group, we had each other over for dinner every once in a while. Uh, my wife took our kids to visit one of the older ladies in the retirement home because she didn't have her grandkids uh, around very much. So it was just, it was good, you know, and, and things like that just throughout the year. Uh, so building authentic community was happening. Now, like I said, we, by no means perfect. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is that what we, that's what we ought to be striving for as small groups, is authentic community where we really know each other and not just kind of wear these 
Christian masks at our gatherings. But that doesn't mean, however, that you're going to be best friends and hold hands with everyone in your small group, okay? So some of these one another's uh, actually tell us almost the exact opposite. It'll tell us to tolerate one another, okay? Okay, you tolerate someone you don't really like, okay? Um, it, it'll tell us to forgive one another. You forgive people who hurt you, okay? So, so it's not saying we're all just going to be best friends and it's going to be easy peasy daisies and unicorns the whole time, okay? Authentic community means we'll let down our masks and in spite of you being messed up and me being messed up, we're committed to working through that and still being in community in spite of it. I'm not going to jump ship just because there's some conflict. By the way, if you ever just go looking for a small group that doesn't have any conflict, they're either A, not doing it right because they're, just, they're wearing those masks, or B, it, it just doesn't exist. Okay? You'll never find it. Now again, the goal is to make disciples. So you could theoretically have a group of people living in community, reminding each other of the gospel, having a firm understanding of the gospel, they're living in each other's lives, uh, but you might, if you had just that group, they would still not be mature or healthy disciples. Because Jesus told us to make more disciples. He gave us a mission. And so if you have a group of people and their only goal is just to hang out with each other all the time, and they're not actually seeking to make more disciples of Jesus, then that's not a healthy group of disciples. What you have is an ingrown religious or holy clique. We need other Christians to help us to live on mission. Jesus, he could not be clearer on this point. The very first thing he says to his disciples in Matthew is, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then, in basically a small group of 12 guys, he disciples them and then he sends them out to make more disciples. His parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, all building on one another, they are all telling us to have the same heart as God. I mean, God the Father's love for lost people ought to flow through our veins as a, as a family of believers. And if a group of Christians, whether it's a church, a small group, or just a Christian family, if we, if we fail to live on mission, we, we just fail, period. And this isn't works righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is one of the identifying factors of our gatherings ought to be making more disciples of Jesus. It, it is crucially important. The mission to save lost people is at the very center of God's heart. And if it's not part of our gathering, then we are doing something different than what God has asked us to do. So, what could this look like? If, if you're a part of a small group, what could that actually practically look like? Maybe the neighbor of one of your small group members who's not a believer is um, getting older and is unable to care for her yard. So you as a small group decide to spend a Saturday morning raking, mowing, laying bark dust, trimming up bushes, and you practically, tangibly show the love of Jesus to your neighbor. Uh, maybe you invite people from your um, office or from your family who don't know Jesus into your small group for a game night or just a dinner, just a hangout time to build relationships. Uh, I heard of one group that uh, every Saturday morning they did a pancake breakfast for the neighborhood. Just in one of the members' houses, they would just make pancakes and they went around and invited every member of uh, the neighborhood. And over a series of weeks, they just 
they start building relationships with their neighbors and they're all doing this in an attempt to witness and share the good news of the gospel with these other people. There are a lot of people who do not know the Father's love. They may have heard the words, God loves you, but they don't actually know God's love. And so our job as a small group, part of it ought to be making more disciples, sharing the love of Jesus with people who don't know it. Small groups, they're not an end in and of themselves. They exist to make more disciples. So a healthy body of Christians is is going to be engaged in all three areas. Again, whether that's a church, just a Christian family, but especially I'm, I'm trying to hammer on small groups this morning. And so I've got this Venn diagram. Richard, you can bring it up. And a healthy small group is going to be operating where all three of these things come together. Where you're, exp- you're rehearsing the gospel, you're studying the Bible, you're praying to one another, with one another. You definitely are not praying to one another, okay? Uh, you're praying with one another. Uh, so you've got gospel transformation, you've got authentic communion where you're genuinely sharing life, you're letting down masks, you don't pretend to be someone you're not, and then you're missional living. When all three of those things come together, that's the sweet spot, Okay? And the reason I'm showing you this is not just for small groups. This is where every Christian ought to operate. This is where we as a church ought to be operating. This is where we want to be. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning, small groups, they're not the only ways to make disciples. That's not the only way to do these things. But I, but I really believe it's the most effective way we can do it as a church. Um, now, it's an area where we're trying to grow. If, if you've been in a small group before, and you're like, man, this is really idealistic. Um, yeah, maybe it is. Like I said, none of us have it perfect. We're going to mess up. We're not always going to be in that sweet spot all the time. Um, but I encourage you, be a part of it. If you want to be a part of a small group, if you want to get connected and try to help create that culture and be a part of it, then um, we're going to do some sign-ups. So the small groups are going to be starting within about the next month here uh, at the church. And so if you want to be involved, um, here's how we're going to do sign-ups. On your Connect card that Scott mentioned during the announcement time, you can just write your name and contact info and then just write the word small group on it, okay? And once you get that into the church office, we'll figure out where to plug you in. But to do that, I need you to write two other things, your name and contact info, small group, and then you need to write what nights of the week you can commit to and like geographical area. So you might write Salmon Creek or Ridgefield, or Fisher's Landing, mall area. Just kind of write generally where you are, and then we'll try to get you as best we can uh, plugged in with another group of Jesus followers who are trying to make disciples um, in, your, in your space that are part of this church, okay? So we're going to do, do that today. So if you want to be involved, go ahead and do that. Um, we're also going to do it for the next two weeks. So if for some reason you don't have that information today or um, you want to come back next week with somebody else and sign up, that's fine. Um, and even if you miss that window, just contact the church office or contact me and we'll figure out how to get you connected. We don't want to leave anybody out in the spiritual or relational cold here. So let me um, pray and we're going to celebrate communion together. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for the gospel that while we were, yes, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, while we were running away from you, you were pursuing us. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life for us. God, for making us new. And I pray that you would help us to remind each other of those truths. 
God, I pray that you would grow our church in authentic community. May we put down our masks and stop pretending to be people we're not. I pray that we would have genuine and real friendships with others in this church. And God, I pray that you would help us to make more disciples. I pray that you would bring lost people through our doors. I pray that they would hear the gospel. They would hear the good news of Jesus. They would believe God's love for them. and They would be saved, Lord. I ask that you would help us to operate in that sweet spot. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.